Good evening. How are you tonight? Nice to see your faces, especially your smiling faces. I mean, you all have nice faces, but the smiling ones are particularly nice tonight. How are you doing? Are you? You're not lying, are you? <laughs> hey, over here on the couch, we have Jenna. Jenna James. Do you know Jenna? Do you listen to radio? 88.3 early in the morning. Jenna, what time do you start in the morning? 6 a.m. 6 a.m. Yes. Till what time is the show? 10 a.m. How many here listen to her show? Would you raise your hands? <laughs> do you think she does a good job? She does a great job, huh? Thank you. Am I embarrassing you? Yes. J Jenna, tell me a little bit about yourself. You work, how long have you been in radio? Um, going on about seven years, all here in Albuquerque. And your parents were here, but they moved away recently. Where did they go? Yes, they went to Japan. Japan. That's a wow, that's a long, long way, way for a family visit. I just visited them in April. I in went Japan? and saw them. Yes. Do you know any Japanese? Doma regato gozaimasu. Impressive. Arigato. Asumimasen. What? Asumimasen. What does that mean? Excuse me, I'm sorry, I don't know. Oh, okay. well, you know more than I do. <laughs> I learned um, that one first. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jenna, so, um, okay, what are you doing here tonight, by the way? I... No, you have questions to ask, right? Yeah, you said I'm on the couch. You what? I'm on the couch. You're you on the said. couch. Yes. On the counselor's couch? Yes. Okay. No, you well, we have internet questions, and uh, they were given to us today what they called the best of the internet questions. So somebody took a bunch of the questions and then made a decision of what they thought were the best questions uh, to have answered. And so we have a few minutes to do that. And Jenna is going to ask the questions. Yes. The first one, uh, Sandy writes, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love is not jealous. Why then does God say in the second commandment that he is a jealous God? With that, wouldn't it be natural to be jealous if you love your husband and he is paying attention to another woman, or is that sinful on my part? I can see why that's one of the best questions. That's, um, <laughs> it's controversial is what it is. It's a hot button, I think. <laughs> well, when the Bible talks about God being a jealous God, the first time that's mentioned, I believe, is Exodus 20, when in the commandments he says, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. They were to make no graven images because the Lord wanted an exclusivity of worship. In fact, he said through Isaiah the prophet that he wouldn't share his glory with another. So that's God's jealousy. He won't share what is rightfully his with another, his glory. When in 1 Corinthians 13 it talks about jealousy, a lot of other translations use the word, well, there's a lot of words that different translations use, but most of the modern ones use the word love doesn't envy. Love doesn't want what somebody else has. That's a hurtful kind of jealousy, i.e. envy. And uh, I think there's a couple different forms of uh, envy. There's the envy that says, um, I wish what you had was mine. Uh, then there's, I think, a second form, which is a more hurtful form, which is, I just wish you didn't have what you have. I don't want you to be blessed at all. I'm, I'm envious because you have something nice. Um, irregardless, I just don't want to see you blessed. I'd rather see you hurt. 
Now, because God is a jealous God, rightfully guarding what is his, his glory, it would make sense that in a relationship, for a wife to want her husband's love isn't a bad kind of jealousy. That's not envy. And if he's paying attention to another woman, for him to say, you're just a jealous woman, that's a good kind of jealousy. I don't think you can have true love unless you can guard that relationship because that relationship doesn't belong to anybody else but those two. And if somebody else is out there vying for it, I think she ought to be jealous. And um, I'm just kind of reading behind the lines, perhaps, Sir Jenna, that maybe the husband has said something about it as well. So Perhaps. Perhaps. Nicely done. Well, thank you, Jenna. <laughs> um, this is from 14-year-old Kyle and 12-year-old Stephanie. And they say, what do you think of horoscopes? Are they really bad to look at? We should ask Dave, because Dave reads them every day, don't you, Dave? No, just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> oh, what do I think of horoscopes? And it's coming from a 14-year-old Stephanie. Um, Stephanie, let me give you a little bit of... Nicely done, Jenna. Great question. Thank you. <laughs> if you were to go back historically where horoscopes began, the ideology of basing our lives upon the stars developed back in Mesopotamia around the time and before the time of Abraham. And then from Mesopotamia went into Assyria, then later on into Egypt. And there is, in modern horoscopes, um, an ideology where the, the, those who read them and believe in astrology believe that man has evolved and is evolving according to the signs of the stars of the zodiac. And they say that these cycles in man's evolution last between 2,000 years to 2,400 years. And what they tell us is that presently we are in the Piscean age or the age of intellect and we're evolving now into the Aquarian age the spirituality of man. That's why you even find worldly people touting as some great thing man's spirituality. We're more spiritually inclined than ever before. But keep in mind, it's not just a harmless practice because in the Old Testament it was considered divination. Why? Because they based this cycle and this uh, setting of the stars as a way to tell the future. And the Bible says, nobody knows your future except God. And um, in fact, God sort of gives a little challenge in Isaiah. He, um, it's like a battle of the gods, where he says, tell you what, I will speak of things in advance, and they will happen, and they'll come to pass. Can any of your gods do this? And they can't. Nobody can tell the future except God. In the book of Daniel, he was around a lot of astrologers in the court of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And none of those guys could produce any credible prediction of the future. It was only by revelation. So to read a horoscope isn't, oh, let's just see what Pisces or Leo or whatever I am. Oh, wow, that's really a lot like, uh, you know, what's, what I'm going through. You don't need it. Stay away from it. God has given you all that you need for life and godliness, and it's accurate. So I would say, Stephanie, stay away from it. And Jenna, I would stay away from it as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And Dave? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Pete writes, 
I was talking to someone today who said that the Bible contradicts itself. He pointed out that in the Old Testament, the Jews went about slaughtering women and children, while the New Testament talks about peace. I wasn't quite sure how to respond. How would you respond? Well, Pete, um, the first part of your question, put that back up on the screen, would you? The first part, you have this, yeah. He says, the Bible contradicts itself. He pointed out that in the Old Testament, the Jews went, or went about slaughtering women and children. Really? Forgive me, but show me that part. Because we find rare occasions when God gives a command to deal with a race like the Amorites, whom he had given years of grace toward, and then finally, after 400 years, judged them. And part of the judgment was the slaying of that population because of not only their unwillingness to repent, but their atrocities. The Ninevites were like that. You know, we read Jonah, and this guy, this guy has an attitude. He kind of goes through the city of Nineveh at God's command. And his only message isn't, God loves you, but 40 days and you're toast. That's paraphrased a little bit. 40 days and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. And so people wonder, why, was God having a bad deity day or something? Well, what was that about? The Ninevites were notorious for these kinds of practices. They would take people captive. They would cut off their hands. They would cut off their lips, their ears. And eventually, once their victim died, take their head off, let the skull dry out, and put piles of skulls at the gates of the city, as well as piles of lips and all these appendages, really gross. They devalued human life. They were a scourge and a plague on the earth, and they hampered God's program for Israel. So God gave that command, but we also know that God relented because there was repentance there. So People didn't go about doing that, and it's not like there's a difference between the Old and the New Testament God. God loved in the Old Testament and forgave and had mercy, and if you think what happened in the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is loving, read the book of Revelation. See what's coming down the pike. Talk about judgment. The whole earth will be judged. That's the truth. Thank you. Thank you, Nicely Jenna. Nicely done once again. <laughs> well, it's because you asked it so well. <laughs> Pete asked the question. I'm just... I think we have time for one more. Okay. Anthony writes, is it okay for Christians to gamble or even just to go to the casino with others, even if they don't gamble? Dave? <laughs> he just said it was fine. I heard him. <laughs> but it's not, and we're, it's a joke. You're thinking, it was a gamble coming to church tonight. <laughs> well... Uh, this is asked by Anthony. Anthony, um, gambling, let, let, me, let me get right to the heart of it. Gambling is dangerous because you can squander God's money. You go, wait a minute, it's not God's money. I give him 10%. This is my money. No, 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 no. All of it belongs to God. He let you, by his grace, keep 90 And he let you keep 90 so that you could be a wise steward of it. The Bible talks about stewardship. And uh, it can be dangerous uh, because, honestly, you rarely beat the machine. They stack the odds on these things so that more money goes into them and you eventually spend more money than usually comes. So that's what you're betting against. Add to that what can happen to gamblers when they become compulsive. And 
sometimes it leads not just to going out and having fun at a slot machine or the races or do they still have races here? Do they? Somebody said yes. Find out who that is. There's a no. <laughs> just kidding. But it it can ruin families because people uh, there have been compulsive gamblers who have pulled out the stops, stolen from their businesses, family members to get more money to do more gambling. We had a tragic experience here a couple weeks ago at this burger joint where there was a shooting and uh, the lady who was shot by the police, it was suicide by cop, I was there at the press briefing with the FBI and the chief of police, um, this lady robbed two banks and um, was a compulsive gambler, I hear, and she was probably getting the money, the investigation goes, to be able to um, uh, feed this unfortunate addiction that had so uh, grabbed a hold of her, and our heart goes out to those who are involved in any kind of addiction like that. So um, invest wisely, Jesus said. Don't squander what God has given. And then there's one final thing. I don't want to drone on because I think we're about out of time, but it, the Bible speaks about the value of hard work and effort. And the idea that, ooh, if I win, I don't have to work anymore. It takes away something that God has allowed and given to the human race after the fall, and that is uh, the value of hard work. God exonerates labor. And uh, uh, you say, well, that's part of the curse, by the sweat of your brow. Um, but in the, new uh, in the Old Testament, in the law, God exonerated labor as something that is good and man is blessed because of it. So I think you put all those factors together and, Anthony, like some of these other things, stay away from it. So, Jenna, stay away from it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Give Jenna a big hand, would you? And skip. <laughs> Dave, are you going to sing another song? You don't have to say, sir. It's just me. It's not about gambling. It's what? It's not about gambling. Okay, good. <laughs> As we come to the closing chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, let's review some of the lessons we have found in this Old Testament book. The book of 2 Samuel was written to record the history of Israel's greatest leader, King David. This record also demonstrates that one person can make a difference, either for good or for evil. David was an imperfect man, but an ideal leader because his leadership was generally submitted to God's direction. Let's remember that Jesus is identified as the son of David, and significantly, the Messiah will ultimately occupy David's throne. This reminds us how highly esteemed David is in the view of heaven. Tonight, as we come to the epilogue of 2 Samuel, will find continued turmoil in the kingdom of Israel. The last words of David, along with his song of praise. And now, let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel as we study together, line on line. Well, yes, indeed. 2 Samuel, back once again in our study. Been gone for a couple weeks on Wednesday night, and now we're in the last section of that book. And we'll cover two chapters tonight, two chapters next week, and we'll be done with this book. So let's turn to 2 Samuel. I'm going to read an ad to you. This was in a newspaper. Ad, lost dog with three legs. Blind in left eye, missing right ear, tail broken, 
and recently injured answers to the name of Lucky. (laughs) Well, David must have been really lucky because he had so many problems in his life. Some of them were his fault, of course, things he did, sins he committed, adultery, lying, deception, murder, you know the list. But there were other troubles that he had that were not of his own doing. They were the fault of others, like Saul, in attacking him. Life throws everybody a lemon or two. David had a cart full of them. And uh, as I read the Psalms, though he pours his heart out before God and is quite honest in every situation, we never read of David becoming bitter, entrenched in a bitter attitude, but trusting, looking for God to deliver. And we're going to see that tonight because the 22nd chapter is one of David's psalms that is written as he responds to some of life's problems. Somebody once said that there are people who go out and make a good living, but they don't have a good life. I think that's a very interesting description. There are some people who work hard at getting everything they want past what they need in life. They make a good living, but their life really is a grind, and and they get ground up by it. They get a bad attitude because of it. And attitude is, well, it's everything. It's everything. David had this incredible attitude toward God that it's sometimes staggering to read. Here's a guy who had problem after problem, death in his family, murder, intrigue, rape, the loss of a kingdom, and yet some of the most beautiful psalms were written in the most depressing times. Charles Spurgeon said, The songs of the sanctuary are in no small part indebted to the trials of the saints. Some of the best songs, hymns, choruses were written by people who wrote them not on a beach in Maui, having a vacation, but in the depth of sorrow and despair. And we see that. Here's a great example in um, David's life here. We're going to look at chapter 21 and 22. But because we haven't visited this book for a while, let's just go back in our our minds to the outline of the book. Do you remember it still? There's a three-part outline I gave you at the beginning. Uh, David's triumphs, uh, chapters 1 through 10. He gains territory. He becomes strong in his kingdom. His throne is established. Those are David's triumphs. Chapters 11 and 12 speak about David's transgressions. How he went from that place of triumph and fell and sinned. And then chapter 13 to the end of the book speaks about David's troubles. The result of his transgression in the midst of his triumph. Trouble after trouble, woe after woe. We've covered that. The last four chapters, as was stated in the video, is an epilogue, an appendix It is not necessarily chronological. It doesn't start at one point and end at another. But it seems rather to be a smattering 
of chronological elements that sum up the life of David. So don't think that it's chronological, though it is logical. It's logical. It's logical because David met the trials, the tragedies, the war that you're going to read about, the issues that came up. He met it in the right way. And that's sort of how the book is closing. It's setting David and how he responded to those tragedies and troubles in his life. He responded to them by praise. Now, I'm going to give you a short little outline for tonight's study that will outline chapters 21 and 22. It starts out with broken promises. Saul had made, or the children of Israel had made promises, covenants in their past that were not honored by Saul's descendants, the first monarch of Israel. And so we open up with broken promises. The second part of the 21st chapter are token skirmishes, just little, small, insignificant in a general scheme for the nation's sake, wars, these remnants of the Philistines, some giants left over still trying to get a David and the children of Israel. And then chapter 22 is that third major division, spoken praises. It is a psalm of worship and praise to God. Let's, let's begin by um, looking at the broken promises. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Good thinking. We're having some problems. There's not enough rain. God promised Israel that if they would obey him, he would send rain. There had been no rain for three years. So he prayed. And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. And he said, Whatever you say, that I will do for you. So they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We're going to hang them before the Lord? In Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose, and the king said, I will give them. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a promise that had been made some 400 years before 2 Samuel 21. Way back in the days of Joshua, the first general, the successor of Moses, 
Right after the Battle of Jericho was the second battle in the land, the Battle of Ai. Some pronounce it I because it's just A and I, so you could say I or Ai. But that little battle of a little town with a little name. After that battle, a group of people, the Gibeonites, saw what their fate was. They saw, okay, here's an invading army. They've got the firepower. We're going to lay down our arms and we're going to make a covenant with them. Thinking that perhaps the children of Israel would annihilate them from off the face of the earth, the Gibeonites, who only lived a few miles away, they were in the land, dressed up, not for Halloween, but dressed up to deceive they pretended like they had been walking for days. Their bread was stale. Their feet had sandals on them that were torn up, beaten up. Their clothes was sh were shredded. And they pretended to be foreigners. We have come from a long way away. We're not of this land. We are foreigners, they said. Now, because we are foreigners, they said, make a deal with us, a covenant, that you won't kill any of us. And so Joshua says, well, tell you what, we'll make you contract laborers. You'll work for us. You'll do the menial tasks that we don't want to do, and it'll be a covenant that we'll make with you perpetually. Hands were extended. Handshakes were given. The covenant was done. But that was 400 years before. But see, that's the point. When you make a promise, whether you make it four days ago or 40,000 years ago, it's a promise. And to God, a promise is important. To us, a promise should be important. You say you'll be on time for an appointment. You make a phone call and say, I'll call you right back. You promise to pay the bank, your car payment, your mortgage payment, or your apartment payment. You promise the wife of your youth, till death do us part. All of these are promises. And God holds them at high esteem. And so should we. Promises should never be made carelessly. Promises should be kept meticulously. Saul and or his descendants, probably Saul, it was his idea. He was that kind of guy, you remember. But his descendants also decided that they would break this covenant, and they did, and the Gibeonites were killed. Now, God made some promises of his own, and I want you uh, to open your Bibles backwards to uh, Deuteronomy for just a moment. 28. Speaking of promises, God promised something to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 28 is a chapter full of them. Let me give you the skinny on it. God says, you're going into a new land. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. I'm giving it to you. While you're there, obey me. If you obey me, I will bless you. Rain will come down upon you. Your crops will be in abundance. Your houses will be blessed. But he also made another promise. If you don't obey me, something else will happen. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 28. And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder. 
how descriptive, dust, a dry and dusty land. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now David must have realized this. Hey, it's been pretty dusty around these parts for the last few years. I wonder if something's up here. Maybe this is divine retribution, divine judgment. Hey God, what's up? He prayed. God answered, it's because of Saul, the descendants of Saul that have killed the Gibeonites and broken the promise. So David does the lawful thing, the legal thing, according to the book, and says, okay, what do you want me to do? And they go, we don't want silver, we don't want gold. We want seven descendants from the house of Saul, and we'll kill them. Now this puzzles a great many people, and I've read different explanations, but many commentators believe, and uh, I don't know if you do much reading of commentators, but there are some taters more common than others, and the taters that I read that are common said that probably what was going on is they were demanding the seven who were implicated in the crime of Saul's household, who actually carried it out, who were still alive, they were to be justly, lawfully killed for the crime that they have committed. And so David did it. Verse 6 of chapter 21, and the king said, I will give them. The king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them and David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. Notice that little thing. I don't want you just to skip over it and forget that phrase that's put in here on purpose, the Lord's oath. David and Jonathan swore an oath before the Lord. Now that promise, that human covenant, is designated as the Lord's oath. It's sacred. It's holy. A promise is only as good as the one who makes it. If the person is a reliable person, you can be reasonably sure or perfectly sure that that promise is going to come to pass. So when God makes a promise, you can be absolutely sure it's going to happen. Peter in 2 Peter talks about the promises of God as great and precious promises. But we all know those who make us promises who are unreliable. And you mutter under your breath or you think in your mind when a promise is made by that one, yeah, right. Oh, sure. There's a book out. It's been out for several years now. But it is one of the most fascinating surveys of the American psyche and practice. It is called, interestingly, The Day That America Told the Truth. Like it only happened in one day. Perhaps they're right. The Day America Told the Truth. James Patterson and Peter Kim were the authors. And they did this survey. It was completely anonymous. They conducted it in such a way, in their view, as to be the most accurate poll that could be taken. Anyway. Questions were asked, lifestyles were investigated, moralities were probed. And on the issue of promises, lying, 
James Patterson and Peter Kim said 91% of all Americans lie regularly. Wow. It went on to say 36% of Americans in this poll who were taken and they're averaging it out, 36% admit to speaking really big lies. And then they broke it down by demographic. They said that men lie more than women. Do you believe that? All the women are going, oh yeah. No problem here. What else does it say? It said men lie more than women. Younger men lie more than older men. Makes sense. You get older, there's just no reason to lie. You just think, you know what, this is who I am. Like it or don't like it. I'm not going to hide anymore. So men lie more than women. Younger men lie more than older men. The poor lie more than the rich, said this poll. The unemployed lie more than the employed, said the poll. And liberals lie way more, according to the poll, than conservatives. This I'm not surprised on. <laughs> but just know this, folks, that words spoken, promises given, are to be considered by us to be sacred. In Proverbs 6, there's a little list. There are seven things that the Lord hates. Or it says six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. One of them is a lying tongue. God hates it. God wants your promise to be as gold. You said it, you'll do it. Don't be like this fella who wrote the Internal Revenue Service this honest letter. Dear sirs, I cannot sleep. Last year, when I filed my income tax return, I deliberately misrepresented my income, he admitted. Now I cannot sleep. Enclosed is a check for $150 for taxes. If I still cannot sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> Why not do it now? He thought, well, if I send $150, I'll sleep. The promise was broken. David met it by a lawful deed. Now, as we go down in the chapter, and I'll draw your attention to verse 10, these men were hung. We read the phraseology. They were hung before the Lord. There was one gal who was very grief-stricken by this, one of the concubines of Saul previously in his kingdom. And uh, her name, verse 10, was Rizpah. And there are, here's the picture. Let me paint it for you. There are the seven bodies hanging dead and you know that the body begins to decay, decay instantly, almost instantly. She stayed outside, prostrate, grief-stricken on a rock, with her robe spread out on the rock, from about April to October, shooing the scavengers, the birds of prey, away from the bodies who would make a feast of it. Now, why she did that, we're unsure. It just says she did it because the law of Moses said when a person kicks the bucket, you 
place them in the ground, you bury them the same day. You get rid of the bucket. You, you bury them. But they were kept out there for months. King David heard about it. David gave them a decent burial, and it must have triggered something in his mind. It triggered that the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, who were slain on Mount Gilboa, were still up north in Jabesh Gilead, because you remember that the men of Jabesh Gilead took the body of Saul and Jonathan, his son, off the wall of Bethshean and buried them. Well, there are the bones still up there in a foreign country. So David takes those bones after this episode of the hanging and buries Jonathan and his dad, Saul. So verse 14, they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king has commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So broken promises were met by prayer and practicing lawfulness. That's the first part of it, broken promises. Now, the, the, the rest of the chapter deals with token skirmishes. It's not major battles. It's not the Ammonites waging war against the Israelites. It's little, simple, superficial skirmishes but it did involve David, so it is mentioned. When the Philistines were at war with Israel, so this is earlier on in the reign of David, no doubt, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then ish be banab this is all that we know about Ishbi Banab is really right here. So if you ever wondered, what about that guy Ishbi Banab? Here it is. This will answer all of those issues. Ishbi Banab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, seven and a half pound spearhead. So he's a big guy like the giant, presumably Goliath. Thought that he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and struck the Philistines and killed him. And then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. David had already killed Goliath. The giants are over, but now they're back, so to speak, because the giant has some kids, and the kids are pretty big boys. And there's a lesson here. David fought giants, not just at the beginning, but throughout his life. And let me give you a word of, I guess, warning, but I think encouragement. Your spiritual warfare doesn't, doesn't end when you face temptations the right way and and you have victory over them, and you're living for the Lord, and you think, I've overcome temptation. It's all done with, isn't it? Oh, oh no. You will fight those temptations and those giants throughout your whole life. You're saying, Skip, I thought you said that was supposed to be encouraging. It is encouraging, and here's why. Because some of you, as you mature in your walk with Christ, you get a little worried about your own personal life. You're thinking, 
wait, wait a minute, I've been a Christian a long time now. I'm still feeling these feelings in that area. I still feel tempted in that area. Something's really wrong with me. No, it's not. It's very normal. And the giants don't go away. Now, you can handle it the right way and maintain that victory. You don't have to give in to it. I'm not saying everybody gets tempted, so just fall into sin. Everybody does it. No. But be encouraged that the giants don't go away, but your ability to handle them can mature as well. Hey, remember Jesus. He was tempted by the devil. He met it right with Scripture and with confidence in God. Do you remember how that episode ends? It says the devil left him until an opportune time. Did you get that? Until an opportune time. Oh, he left, but he comes knocking, right? And so, oh, you meet the temptation with flying colors. You've got the victory. Yeah. And Satan all the while says, I'll be back. And he is back. He looks for the opportune times, the weak moment, when you're caught off guard, and the giants come back. And David had them, not just the first time, but, but in verse 15, here he grows faint. Now, when he fought Goliath, he didn't grow faint at all. He was, you know, running around there with a sling and a few stones and just agile as can be. But um, he's a little older, a little slower. I'm beginning to relate more and more to David. Here, not before. At one time, I could relate to David in his younger years. Energy, fast, speed, tenacity. David's getting faint here. He's slowing down a little bit. Abishai, the son of Zariah, you remember him. We don't even have to cover him. You know him so well by now. Came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. And this is, this is important. It's transitional for David in his life. The men of David swore to him. Listen to what they say to their leader. You shall, not go, you shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. In other words, David, you are such an important commodity to us. You're more valuable to us as a king of a nation than as a warrior in a battle. I know you like to fight, and that's who you are, and you're really good at it. You're a great soldier, general, all that stuff. But we don't want another leadership vacuum. We had one with Absalom. We don't want that to happen again. You're the lamp of Israel. You're the one we all look up to. You're valuable. So David, what this means to you personally, buddy boy, is you have to learn to transition now. You have to embrace this level of your life, this middle age or older age, whatever he was at at this point. You have to embrace that and make the best of it. Be the king. Don't be a warrior. That was transitional for David. He had to lay down the battle armaments of his youth and rise up to the level of being king only. Now, why, why am I explaining it that way? Because I have a hunch that some of us can relate to that. I know some people that refuse to grow up. You know, they try to act and look and dress like they did when they were 16 or 20. And you know what? When you get old and you try to do that, you look goofy. And people know it. And you may live in denial, but it's, it's really goofy. Time to transition. Lay down your youth. Don't try to hold on to the vibe, the look. Be who you are. 
come into a new area of strength, lay it down, and you find a whole new area of liberty to be who God made you at this point in your life. Let's finish this out. It happened afterward. There was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. I don't know where Gob is. I didn't get that far in my research. Forgive me. That's an important thing to you. You should go home and study that through the night. Where is Gob? And um, this guy who's mentioned next, who I'm not going to pronounce, killed Saf. I can do that. Who was one of the sons of the giants. There's another son of the giant. Again, there was a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of this other guy, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, and the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. These guys carry big weapons because they're big boys. Oh, speaking of big boys, look at the next description. Yet again, there was a battle in Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Do you think he was made fun of? Twenty-four in number. And he was also born to the giant. The giant. The giant was Goliath. So, and I don't know what the significance is. It's just, it's odd, and so the Bible mentions it. This guy had six toes on each foot. It's probably heavy, heavy foot. Had to call it tow truck, I suppose. <laughs> oh. We all hate puns, don't we? Punishing, aren't they? So when he denied Israel, or he, when he, excuse me, when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. You remember when David fought Goliath? He picked up some stones out of the river. Do you know, remember how many? Five, right? Five smooth stones. Was it because he thought he was going to miss Goliath the first time? No, he swore. He goes, man, I'm a sharpshooter, buddy. I've gotten the lion and the bear at a great distance, and I can put down this giant no problem. He's got a big old head, easy target. He'll fall hard. But he picked up five smooth stones, and some people think, well, he picked up five because he thought he was going to miss. He'd have backup. Perhaps, but perhaps because David knew this guy has four boys, and eventually they're going to come at him. And so, well, I'll save the stones for the boys. Now, he didn't have to use them because we saw that he had help from some of the others that didn't come at that time, but they did come back, and they came back with a vengeance. Now, chapter 22, we're not going to read it all, but we're going to close with this wonderful hymn, this psalm of praise. And so we've seen broken promises, token skirmishes, and now, really, all of that was a setup contextually for chapter 22 which is spoken praises. This is how David handles broken promises and token skirmishes with spoken praises. Listen, David met life, good times or bad times, with pretty much the same approach, praise, pouring out his praise or complaint or whatever, but he, he did it in prayer before God. Why do we make prayer our last resort? 
It should be our first resort. Why do we have to say something like, there's nothing left to do but pray? What a confession that is. You know what you're saying by that? You're saying, I'll try everything in my own flesh to fix the problem, and if I can't fix it, I'll have to trust in God. Oh, then there are others who say, well, you know, this is just a little small issue here. God's like spinning the universe on its axis. He doesn't need me to bring up this little item. This is just a little thing. God's dealing with all the big things. Well, that's the point, isn't it? The point is, Nothing's big to God, either spinning a universe or that little thing that's little to you. It's all little to God. Can you think of anything that's big to God? Where God goes, I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) Well, I won't pray for a cold. I'll pray for cancer because that's big. For you, maybe, but not for God. And here's another point. If you learn to bring the little things before God, they won't grow and become big things, perhaps. Nip them in the bud. Get them early. And that was David's pattern. How do you know that, Skip? Because last time I counted, there were 150 psalms, and a lot of them, most of them, were penned by David. That's a lot of expression. It's a lot of praise. That's a lot of prayer. Somebody once said, prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. Boy, David was in shape then. You've seen that old adage that says, Life is short, play hard. David's motto was, life is short, pray hard. Life is short, praise hard. That's how he responded. Now, um, chapter 22, and you'll, you'll, you'll notice it. In fact, I don't really want you to do this now, but you may want to write it down in the margin or put a marker at uh, Psalm 18 because... Proverbs, uh, 2 Samuel 22 reads almost identical to Psalm 18. In fact, even the um, introduction is just about identical. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. What does that tell you? God delivered him from his enemies and, it says, from the hand of Saul. Does that tell you anything? It tells me that David didn't count Saul as his enemy. He's in a different category. Thank you for delivering me from my enemies and from Saul. David, though he had every right to count Saul as an enemy, refused to do it because he said he is the Lord's anointed and looked with such grace graciousness, favor upon Saul because he was in the place God had allowed him to be in. He took it seriously. And he said, let's look at what he said. It's pretty cool. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my strength in him I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. David's outlook was determined by his uplook. David just didn't look inside of himself because that would be depressing. David didn't look around at the circumstances of his life. That would be distressing. But he looked up. 
so that his outlook in life was determined by his uplook toward God. And because God was in the equation, because David factored God in, there was always reason for hope. He was never hopeless. In fact, he even talked to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Trust in God. You know, pepped himself up when he needed it. There's always hope. What situation are you in tonight that you think, this is hopeless? It is not. It's because you're looking in here or out there instead of up there. Let your uplook change your outlook. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the great theologian, the great scholar, the great, 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 you could add a lot of things. He was just a great guy. There's a period of his life where he was greatly depressed. And he moped. And you know, you know what it's like when you're in those er episodes of your life, you are more mopey at home than at the office. You take it out on your family. They notice it. You're, you're worse in your disposition toward them, and they, they feel it. Well, Martin Luther's moping around the house, and his wife, Katie, who had an edge to her, noticed it and was tired of it. He kept it up day after day, week after week, moping around the house. And so one day, Katie, his wife, dressed all in black, totally in black, black skirt, black blouse, black neck covering, black gloves, and appeared in their house throughout the day and in the evening in black. Martin Luther looked at her and said, Katie, what's wrong? You look like you went to a funeral. Did anybody die? And she said, Martin, God is dead. Martin Luther said, I beg your pardon? She said, well, by observing you the last few weeks, I would only concur by looking at your life that God is dead. And that shook him back into sense. It is said that after that episode, he wrote a single word in Latin, vivit, he lives. And he posted that on the walls of his study so that at times where he was prone toward depression, prone to give up, prone to lose hope, he would remember he lives. And there was always hope. David would be that example. When the waves of death encompass me, verse 5, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, hell, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Now just in passing, Mark, verse 5 and 6, in your brains, the substance of it. Understand what David is saying. David is saying, God, I'm not naive. I realize that even for those who love you totally, who worship you completely, that we have problems too. We face issues too. We, we face death and uh, fear and sorrow, uh, snares of death, distress. It was Jesus who said, God causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It was Job who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of God. 
Only those who are spiritually naive and in denial live their lives saying, if you're a born-again Christian, you'll never have bad things happen to you. God will deliver you from every little possible quake in life. That's so far removed from reality. David wasn't naive. He admitted it. He poured his heart out before God. And sometimes God will calm the storm for you. He'll calm the storm for you. It's raging. And miraculously, he'll speak, and the storm and the waves are still. There's a lot of times God doesn't do that. But God would rather calm you in the storm, calm your nerves down, put you at rest while the waves are still mounting. So he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. And notice, th notice these words, called upon the Lord. I cried to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. The New Testament gives this a term, this kind of prayer. It's called supplication. Supplication. It's, it's familiar territory to us. Our prayers get really good when we're in trouble. And, I mean, they get turbocharged. You know, you, you have normal praying, Lord, bless his food and the nourishment of our bodies, Jesus' name, God is good, God is great. But then there's trials that come your way and winds that blow particularly hard, and you pray with your back against the wall in great fervency. Oh, you mean it now. It's called supplication. And, folks, there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm not putting it down. David did it. He did it throughout the Psalms. It speaks of the kind of prayer with great emotion. Have you ever wept before the Lord? Have you ever cried out in anguish before God? Have you ever wrestled with God? Honestly. Kelly Kennard, a housewife and mother who lives in Willard, Ohio, was at home one day reading her Bible. Her three-year-old daughter, Kayla, was in the next room playing. Phone rang. Mom didn't want to pick it up. She was having her devotions. Kayla picked it up and said to the one who called, I'm sorry, Mommy's busy having her daily emotions. <laughs> David had his emotions, and he let them known before God. Now, I, I, I don't have time, so I want to kind of cut to a couple verses and then close in prayer. I would suggest you go home and read this, meditate on it, let it be part of your own prayer before you close the day, the evening. Verse 17, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me into a broad place, he delivered me. Because he delighted in me. Now this part I understand. Yeah, sure. It's not because I delighted in God and God saw it and go, okay, you've worked hard now. But because God sovereignly, independently delighted in me, he did it. It's all of him, none of me. But look at the next part. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord 
and have not wickedly departed from my God. Really? <laughs> really? Is that David's life? I mean, we look at this and we think, um, David's either in denial, or this is uh, pre uh, all of the stuff he did wrong. I don't think so. Again, those taters that are sometimes common, the commentators, most of them say David was older when he wrote this psalm. This is a summation of how he handled his enemies in life. That he's looking back. But how could he say that? I have not wickedly departed from my God. Oh, wait a minute now. You who know David's life might want to argue a little bit with David now. Hey, David, uh, do you remember that girl named Bathsheba? And you remember that guy named Uriah? Whom you killed! So what is going on? How can David be saying this? Well, one of the key words is enemy that we read about in verse 18. He's comparing his lifestyle outwardly to his enemies. Now, his life wasn't perfect, but he's comparing to his enemies. And understand that in Psalm 51, which he penned years before after he committed sin with Bathsheba, he openly and honestly acknowledged his sin before God, didn't he? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this great evil in your sight. So he did admit it. Here he claims righteousness and he claims innocence and cleanness of hands, verse 21. What's going on? Psalm 51, he pours his heart out before the Lord. He's only before the Lord, before you and you only have I sinned. And when you're before the Lord and you see yourself in the holiness and righteousness of God, the closer you get to God, the further away you feel from God. You can always tell a person who is spiritually mature, they're never cocky. There's a humility. The more they know God, they realize how sinful they are. Woe is me, said Isaiah, I am undone. Depart from me, I am a sinful man, said Peter. That's before the Lord. But before his enemies, he is accounted in God's sight as being righteous because, again, David did trust and believe and lean completely upon God. Before God... He saw himself as sinful. Before his enemies, because of God, he calls himself here righteous. Now, apply that for a moment, and we'll go on and we'll close. Promise. Before your enemies, God declares you as righteous. And so Satan tempts you, and then Satan scorns you and says, What right do you have to come before God? I saw what you thought today, what you did today, what you said today. I know you inside and out. You're a creep, and you know it. Before your enemy, because you're in Christ, you're righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. I think a lot of you understand the first part, I'm sinful. A lot of you don't understand the second part, which is New Testament, you're righteous, declared by Christ. And that's why a lot of you are stuck. You can't get over that hump. You need to see yourself in Christ. 
I have more things to say, but I'm not going to take the time to say them because we don't have time. Always the, the crunch for the preacher. So let's take it over to verse uh, 50. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David's response in good times and bad times. David's response in the midst of broken promises, token skirmishes, with spoken praises to David and his descendants forevermore. So it's not about luck, like the dog named Lucky. It's about attitude, isn't it? Attitude, an attitude of gratitude. Are you making a living, but you haven't made a good life? You don't live a good life? Do you see yourself only in the first part, I'm sinful, but not the second part, you're righteous in Christ? Or, even worse, maybe you don't see yourself in the first part as being a sinner at all, but you think you're righteous just because you're a nice guy. David saw himself as both, and he poured out his life to God as both. He made a living, he made many mistakes, but he made a life. So, so maybe, maybe the lesson to walk away from is get a life. In a good way, I mean. Get a, get a life, his life. I love what I heard about a woman in India. She was 74 years old. She was a native and indigenous person living in India, born and raised there all her life, a Christian woman. An American lady was visiting India, and she met this gal, and she was so impressed with her, and just how gracious and wise and sweet and how much she gave herself to people. And the visitor said to the lady from India, you are truly a beautiful woman. And the woman replied, well, I sure hope so because God has had 74 years to work on me. <laughs> How many years have you let God work on you? Maybe you've been a Christian 10 years, but maybe he's really only been working on you the last one. Let him work you over if he needs to. Let him work on you. Let him do a great and deep work. Work all that he needs to go out. Heavenly Father, these lessons are so vital, and what, what, a, what a privilege we have to meditate on the statutes and the principles of Scripture. To look honestly at a man who failed, but through failure through the loss of sons and babies, generals, friends, in the midst of broken promises by his predecessor, token skirmishes by those Philistines who were trying to get vengeance. There were these spoken praises, and that just marked this man's life. 
No wonder, though you knew he wasn't perfect, you dared to call him and describe David as a man after your own heart. He longed for fellowship. Help our attitudes, Lord, to live in your presence before the Lord all the days of our life so that we can stand before our enemy, our enemies, in your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. 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 Amen. Let's